0: This is Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams. I am your host, Matt Perdue. Alright guys, welcome back. This is the Anchors, Freaks, and Dreams podcast, where we discuss change. This is a second part of a two-part series uh, discussing meaning in the last... Episode we talked about the difference between reward and meaning and how the the emotions that you feel are different. And we talked about how you can't really, you don't have to attach the meaning of a change to the meaning of life. It's just too, it can be too traumatic. It can be too intense. And it just feels disingenuous if you try to force it. But you simply need something that's greater than you to attach to your actions. I talked about the the hardworking man and how it doesn't really, it doesn't necessarily matter how well of a job he does. Like he doesn't need to win an award for being a hardworking man, just simply that he is. And it doesn't matter how well he splits the wood or milks the cows, especially to his family. It just matters that he does. And so you can, when you're finding meaning within something, you can address it as something where you're making something greater than yourself, something beyond you, their life better, or you're protecting them or providing for them from something worse. And we talked about Geronimo, the Apache warrior, and how the it was the responsibility it was the danger it was the risk it was the it was the it was the hard things that validated an Apache as a man and as for the young boys growing up and seeing this and having their community and their people their identity reestablished time and time again at the value of of a man that can be hard and he can be aggressive, he can take action, he can put himself at risk. Those are the values. And he looks forward to those things. And if you're looking from a point of view of self-preservation or survival, those would be things that you don't want. You don't wanna take on a load that's too much. You don't want to put yourself at risk. You don't want to be aggressive. Now, who wants to be aggressive when there's a bear or a, a, a bison? Or who wants to be aggressive when you're in a war because you're putting yourself out at the front, at the tip of the spear. But those were the things that were revered and not because you were special. Now, obviously if you went out on a war party and you came back with 15 scalps, then maybe you uh, get some extra glory or a feather in your cap. But the value and the meaning of going out for the hunt, going out, is a scouting party. Any of those things. There's satisfaction in that even if you come back with nothing. There's disappointment, but you did the put you put in the time, you put in the risk, you put in the hard work. You're identifying with the work. So I want to expand upon this in this episode. There's a man called or Victor Frankl, and he was a, a psychologist, an author, but he was best known for a book, Man's Search for Meaning. And this was really the, the point of the book was that Victor Frankl was a Holocaust survival, survivor. In fact, he spent five years in different work in death camps now how he survived all those i don't know i don't know the details on it and how you go into a death camp and you don't you know you make it out alive and maybe it was coincidence per se that he got in there and then they shut one down they sent him to another one or he got a job i don't know sweeping the floor but he survived and so within this book, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about how meaning was the sustainer of those that were in the concentration camps. Because sometimes, you know, they, they were in there for months and months or years. And he said that the, the conditions in the environment was so caustic that you, would, you were being slowly worked to death and starved to death. And how some of them could go months and months and years and and, and sustain themselves under those barbaric conditions. So, just a, a little bit about the the conditions of the these these work camps is that they well, first of all, they were in Poland, and some of them may may have been in East Germany, but either way, I think they were all above. The latitude of the lower 48 states, so you're above Minnesota, you're up in Canada somewhere it's in the winter's frigid and you weren't given appropriate clothing and you were being worked 15 sixteen hours a day. The, you only had enough time to to sleep and to eat and the rest was basically work and you were also being starved. He said that you actually wanted to be sick. As a prisoner, you wanted to be sick because if you were sick, then they sent you to the infirmary. And in the infirmary, you didn't get any medical care. You just simply went to this room with these multiple bunks. And there were like four and five levels of these bunks. And then you didn't even have a mattress. It was just a board. And on this board were all the other sick people. And it's not like you got a board by yourself. You had to share the board with other people. But that was the win-win because in the winter time, look, what you wanted to go to your own bunk it was cold. But on this, there are like three or four people with you on your board, and you'll head in the room to say spoon, so you're like all stacked up against each other. And that seems kind of bad. like it's probably reeks. But you were warm. And you got to sleep. You had to rest. And more importantly, you didn't have to be out there in the, in the, the, the working to death, working and getting work to death, right? And then he also said that at your, at the meal time, you, you get normally soup was what you got to eat. And, but it wasn't really soup. It wasn't like what we think of minestrone, you know, a vegetable beef soup. It was like broth. With a few vegetables in it, and he said that if you were on sick time, then they wanted you to get back to work. Like it, you didn't know good just being sick and not working. So they would give you a little extra, and he said that you would get pee, extra peas in your soup if you were uh, part of the came out of the infirmary. And it wasn't like you got a half a can of extra peas; you got like a teaspoon they would put like 4 peas in there and if you you were sick they put 8. And that was like your protein for the day. So the point is is that you're being starved to death. And he said the people that could create a meaning waiting for them if you will, then they then they could then they actually survive these barbaric conditions. So most of the time it was related to, to the people that they love. And at some point they would be released or emancipated from these, these camps. And, and then they're, they would go back to their home and their family would rejoice that they had returned. And all their friends would throw a party for them. Life would be better than it had ever been. And so, if you could do that, if you could really create this narrative in your mind, then it really had a, this power to it. Your body wouldn't fall apart. But if you didn't, then you would usually just they would just die. They would just work you to death. Now, the other part of his book, the, in the bulk of the end, is him, his logo therapy, and he's um, talking about the transcendence of meaning and the eternal. And this is more of like a release to the meaning of life that we're not in control of because he said, the thing is, is that when these people got out most of the time uh, their, their running narrative, especially if it had been years just was completely had gone into a, a land of fantasy. So they didn't, their, their meaning that they created in their mind wasn't waiting for them. And even worse, a lot of the times, their, their family had died years ago. That they got sent to another camp and were exterminated, like the old, the their, their grandparents and their parents. They got sent to a death camp. The women got sent to a death camp. And his, his you know, maybe if it was a man, his his ability to labor was the only reason he had survived. And, you know, if you were, a if you're a woman. Your fiancé had already remarried and had three kids. There was nobody waiting for you. Your family, your your town had been bombed. Your home was no longer existed. There was nothing there. There was no fantasy. There was no dream. And there was no reality to your meaning. So he said that, Then you had, they had, he had to, as a psychologist, work with these people so that they wouldn't actually just fall apart after they got out. You know, they had the barbaric conditions, but their meaning was still conceivable. But now that was gone, and they, they didn't know what to do from there. And so he had to help create a transcendent meaning for them, and and how that, that process. Now that's that would be a different subject here a more even deeper subject, but we're, we're relating this meaning to this transition that we're trying to accomplish. And so, um, elaborating upon this meaning is very important and attaching it to our community, our identity, and also something that's maybe greater than us, a cause. Well, here's the interesting thing. It's just fascinatingly interesting to me so in these work camps again they were being starved and worked to death most of the work camps they were actually working on the war effort so they were using this free labor to advance the cause of the the nazis and so they would go out on details and build railroads that sort of thing and then if they were in certain camps, then they would bring equipment there and they had to assemble it, or they would bring raw materials and they had to somehow manufacture it. So they are working on like tank parts and guns and bombs and even bullets. And the prisoners knew it. They knew what they were doing, that they were creating something that was going to kill their people. Their countrymen, right? Their family, potentially. And you're thinking, well, I would have sabotaged this stuff. No, you wouldn't have. And if you had been dumb enough to try, you would be dead. So, no, you continued to make war materials for your enemy. You know, the the bloodthirsty murderers, if you will. That's what you did. You just kept going. Well, sometimes they didn't have... Orders or they didn't have a detail or they hadn't received the raw materials or the parts that they needed to work. And the last thing, of course, if you're a prisoner, you I mean, if you're a guard that you want is a a bunch of prisoners with idle hands, you know, because they're likely to find a, a shank or, you know, a rope or a piece of wire. And you know, end one of the guards, or the try and climb the fence, or something like that, or start a riot. That's the that, you don't want idle hands. So you you have to keep them working. So what they would do, Victor said that they would start uh, get the people and they would just dig uh, a trench, and this trench would extend hundreds of yards, and and they would just keep digging it deeper and deeper. You know, five, six, seven, eight, ten feet deep, and with the, in the trench, they would just dump it in a bucket, and then they ha- had to march it across the camp to the other end half mile and then dump it in a pile and go back and fill it up and do it again. You know, they just did that for weeks. And then now, you know, after a few weeks or a couple months, then they had to, they would go back and they would fill up their bucket again from the pile and march it back to the trench and dump it in the hole. And they would do that till they completely filled up the trench. And then what would they do? They would start digging up that loose dirt from the trench again and marching it back across the camp and making a new pile. And he said that when the, the prisoners realized, you know, they, they may they potentially suspected it, like, well, what the heck are we doing, you know, just digging a trench? Are we digging our own graves? Well, guess what? There was a little purpose there. But when they realized that what they were doing was absolutely futile, there was no reason. There was no meaning, there was no purpose behind their labor. They started to die. Now, granted, they're being starved, right, and worked to death anyway. So they, their, their body's ability to, to maintain existence is always on the threshold. But this is what's so interesting. They could be working on stuff that is killing their people, but it had a meaning and they kept going. But when they were doing worthless or senseless things that had no meaning, they died. Their soul departed. Their their soul died, if you will, on the inside. And so their body just returned to the earth. That's how important having an understood or relative meaning to what you're doing, especially if it's hard. It's both positive and lack of it is very, very negative. So I want to take this. This is this is the the point of the fact of the meaning is that. If I can attach what I'm doing to a cause that's greater than me or bigger, a community that's greater than me, or an identity that expands beyond just me, then I can create and attach a meaning to it. Sometimes it just takes a little work. But I want to bring up this point. When we talk about meaning, because most of the stuff that I've been talking about has been practical things that establish the meaning of something. Why are flowers beautiful? Why do flowers smell good? Why do they usually have a fragrant aroma that we find pleasing? Humans. Well, if you looked in a textbook, they're like, well, Flowers are brilliant and bright because they uh, attract the complex eyes of the the bumblebee or the honeybee or the bee or the bug or whatever, or the hummingbird, and because it's it's using these animals as a vehicle to pollinate its species, as if <laughs> as if this plant has a mind of its own, right? Like it—that's its purpose. Okay, so, but that has nothing to do with the human because if you look at the fossil record, then the flowers have existed for millions, if not tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of years before humans existed. So then the humans would have nothing to do with say the evolution of the flower. Now you could say, well, other animals find them pleasing well, it doesn't appear that way. I mean, um, it does. There seems to be clear evidence that the animals can distinguish the flowers from other things, but it doesn't ever seem like they collect them, or they go up and they enjoy smelling them, or they carry them to their the rest of their clan or flock or whatever. Than only humans. I did watch a list I don't know it was the National geographic thing where this rhino was trying to you know it was he was doing some mating ritual with a with a female rhino and the way he did to impress her is he of course he had to fight some other male rhino to clear him out of the area but he um he went into the dead branch and just scooped it up with his horn and brought it over and just threw it down in front of her and apparently that was like a bouquet of flowers to this rhino. And so she's like, Oh, okay. You know, you can father my children. (laughs) That's one heck of a limb, man. I guess there could have been a practical thing. Like he was, he could really handle his horn. I don't know, but you know, it was proof of his, of his uh, ability to pass on positive genes. But anyway, my point is, is there, there just, there, there was nothing, about a log that is obvious to us. And it's not a flower, it's just, they didn't get a bouquet of flowers and hand it to her and try to woo her. That's not part of any animal's mating ritual other than a human. And so what I'm talking about here is that it seems to be that there is a, a, a some type of transcendence that's running along and we're we can only peek into it at certain times. And we know these things and we feel these things and we try to make rational distinctions of them, but we don't, un- we don't really understand them. But that's fine because we don't actually need to understand completely the meaning of life to have meaning be able to sustain and drive us and make us a better person. There's a line from the Shawshank Redemption, in my opinion, it's one of the top like three, five, whatever lines from any movie. And there's two main main characters are Andy or Andy Dufresne, and he's the one that gets incarcerated, although he's innocent. And then there's Red, Morgan Freeman, and he is incarcerated because he did commit murder when he was a younger man. And now they're older. And so just spoiler alert, heads up. When Andy Dufresne finally escapes from Shawshank prison, then Red is talking about it. And he says, I have to remind myself that some birds aren't meant to be caged. Their feathers are just too bright. And when they fly away, the part of you that knows it was a sin to lock them up does rejoice. But still, the place you live in is that much more drab and empty that they're gone. Oh, man, he nailed that. Like a a macaw or a a parrot or a toucan or whatever these bright, brilliant birds with the feathers. His example here. They don't need to be better looking than the next guy, than the next toucan or macaw. They just need to be healthy because they're they're just brilliant. They just need to be, and they need to be the best they can be. Because potentially, what if your purpose is simply to be beautiful? What if your purpose is simply to bring joy to other people? What if your purpose is simply to to go where no one's gone before, to do what no one's done before? to fly higher, to go faster, to discover something, to invent something. But like these are things are all beyond you. And I, I know we have this, this love-hate relationship with beauty in our society anyway, because it's so powerful. It is so powerful. And people that are on the upper, you know, three, five, one, whatever, want the 1% of the beauty, they get a lot of attention. People want a lot of attention. But that's not your point. That's not my point. You know, especially you get to a certain age. <laughs> I mean, even if you were in the 1%, you ain't going to be there for long. It's just a small c- quadrant of your life when you compare yourself to someone else, how beautiful you are. but maybe this part of your life to not just be practical but to be artistic to be aesthetic because here's the thing if you if you're an artist it's attaching meaning to the practicality of you splitting wood is going to be quite difficult there's got to be something that is a little more um, I don't know, ethereal. Uh, if I know what that word means, it just sounds like it fits right there. <laughs> there's, a, there's an ether out there and it's hard to, it's hard to lock down on because the practicality of what you're doing when you create art is not necessarily there. And so that girl that's, that uh, felt transcendent when she said, this is God has given me this gift of poetry. And so if I can bring pleasure to the heart of God by simply doing something, then there's deep, deep, satisfying meaning to it. Why do you think people worship their God? There's no practical, functional thing that you're doing. What is if God needed your worship? There's some type of emotional connection that goes into the transcendent and you feel satisfaction when you do it because you know that you're agreeing with an order that is greater than you. I'm agreeing that God is all powerful and I feel satisfied. It's transcendent. I'm agreeing that God is good and therefore I feel satisfied. I'm agreeing that God is perfect. I'm feeling satisfied. So there's multiple, there's like this is, there's multiple layers of attaching you making a change in your life to something that is very, you know, it's um, nuts and bolts, it's concrete. Um, I'll be healthier, I'll get off this medication. That's meaning. That's deep meaning. And then there's also this um, this kind of I can't I can't explain to you so that you can understand. But if I if if I have to explain it to you, then you're never going to understand why I need to do this. And that's why you're unique. That's why I'm unique. That's why we're all unique. Because there are parts that fit into a community and we can draw, extract, you know, meaning from them. And there are parts that where we're doing something that we understand, we're pushing the good of society or something cause that's greater than us. Or we're we're keeping, we're preserving, we're protecting something that's greater than us. But sometimes we're just producing the best fruit we can because... Right? I'm a pear tree. And I'm manifesting simply by being. But if I can get my roots deep and I can be healthy, fit, functional, and feel good about myself when I look in the mirror as I can, then I'm gonna, I'm going to by nature produce something that is enjoyable for someone else. So other people will enjoy me more. I'm enjoyable to be around because I'm manifesting my identity. That's meaning. All right, guys. Whew, this was a tough one. That was this was deep. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for staying with me. Hope you enjoyed it. And um, I just uh, this is where the dreams come in. We're not necessarily dealing with superficial things, but sometimes. If we don't spend any time to think about something, then we can never get to the bottom of why we're doing it. And therefore we stay in this kind of um, shallow water area and we can't ever dive really deep into our soul and extract that which was going to fulfill, bring to fulfillment that which we want. Now there's a goal, right? And it could be a a reward that we're looking to achieve and that sort of thing, some kind of glory. But maybe we've never even addressed the fact that there's something even deeper than that. And it's true. And it's always been there and it always will be there. And if we never spend the time to attach to it, then we'll never get there. All right, guys, thanks for joining me on this adventure here. This has been Anchors, Freaks and Dreams.